This is the Education Exchange with Paul Peterson. I am the Senior Editor at Education Next. Thank you for joining us. You've all heard of ChatGPT. I'm going to give it the nickname Chats because you know clearly this is more than just one person. So some of you have decided that Chats is going to make us all richer, happier, healthier, and everything else good in life. And others of you have decided that it's going to do away with our jobs and it's going to force us to live as couch potatoes watching machine-made tv shows and all of you are wondering what are chats going to do to schools teachers and students and some of us are even wondering what chat gpt stands for so Michael Horn is here to explain that to us Michael Horn and Daniel Curtis have just written an essay for education next that tells us just how good students like chats can be. And they offer a host of suggestions for, for teachers and schools as to how to deal with this new phenomenon out there. Uh, Michael Horn is a distinguished uh, fellow at the Clayton Christensen Institute for Disruptive Innovation. And this is certainly one of those disruptive innovations. He's also the author of a book from Reopen to Reinvent, and I'll bet you he's engaged in writing a book on chats right this minute. So thank you very much. I should mention that Daniel Curtis is a student at the Harvard Kennedy School. We have uh, Michael Horn with us on the Education Exchange today. So thanks, uh, Michael, for joining us. Paul, it's good to see you. It was good to collaborate with uh, uh, Daniel and, and get you know one of the great students right uh, involved in this. And I don't know if I'm going to write a book on chat uh, GPT or maybe chat GPT will write the book for me. We'll just have to see how that goes. <laughs> no, that's possible. So now the toughest question I have for you today is what does GPT stand for? Oh, boy, you had to start with the hard one because I actually have no idea. I, I think it's something with generative and probably with training or something like that. But I actually do not know what it stands for off the top of my head, Paul. What does I, it? I I have not seen it written down anywhere with what that uh, what those initials uh, allegedly mean. So, uh, so let me ask you. Uh, well, first of all, tell our audience about the essays that you had chats write at each grade level from grade four through grade twelve. You write about that in your article on Education Next. Uh, yeah, just appeared. Uh, so tell what did you what did you find? Uh, how, how well does chats do? Yeah, so we essentially took the engaged New York open curriculum, fourth through twelfth grade. We gave it expository, narrative, and persuasive essays, and gave it the prompts. Had it spit back essays for us with uh, certain word counts, and we asked it to write in the style of you know a fourth grader, a an eighth grader, et cetera, so that it was leveled, if you will. And there are a few conclusions, I think, from it. Number one, uh, chats, I'll use your language, chats uh, does a great job, uh, particularly in the early years, but it always gets a passing grade. So we, so we took these essays it produced and we brought it to actual teacher graders and against the rubric and said, will you grade this on a numerical basis and give the uh, students, uh, if you will, comments? And uh, the lowest grade, I think, was a 69%. So every single essay without any you know further iteration from a student it, it passes uh the, the the rubrics for these questions the the second insight is that 
it does really well in the early years. So fourth, fifth, sixth grade. And then it steadily gets worse and worse as the complexity of the questions and the expectations go up. So, you know, the, that, that, that D plus, if you will, was earned in the later years. And then the third thing that I took away from it is part of the reason it's struggling is that, that what we ask of students as you get older and older is to really grapple with texts and you have to have read the books right themselves. So Midsummer's Night's Dream or, you know, a book by Virginia Woolf or whatever it is. And ChatGPT, at least as far as I can tell, has not in fact read those books, right? It is ingesting large amounts of language and data from the internet about what different people say about those works, but it itself has not in fact read those. So it is you know, and, and the way these large language models work, they're literally predicting the next word that most likely should be, uh, should, should come in a sequence of words. And so it's doing its best with these inputs, but it's not the actual books or texts themselves on which it's producing these essays. Well, somebody said to me that the purpose of artificial intelligence or chats is that the purpose is not to to convey truth, but to persuade the reader. So it's a persuasive statement, but not necessarily a true statement. Do you agree with that assessment? I, I, I never thought about it that way. I guess the way I would say it is in the same way that humans make up stuff or humans say stuff all the time that isn't true. Just look at our politicians to see uh, an example of this. So too do, do these artificial intelligence machines. And as, as one professor of computer science at Georgia Tech told me, he said, you know, people get upset when ChatGPT hallucinates is the word that they use when it starts making stuff up. And he said, but really, if you think about it, because it's a probabilistic model that's just predicting what it thinks the next word should be, it's making stuff up the entire time. And it just so happens that largely it gets it right. And then every once in a while it goes off the rails with something that doesn't make any sense. But that's actually not that different, perhaps, from human beings on certain uh, interactions as well. Well, I was watching a TV program uh, this morning, actually, and 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 the uh, commentators were terribly upset that uh, chat uh, was, or if it wasn't trying to deceive you now, it soon would have the capacity to be able to deceive us. And then I, that, that led me to think about uh, a book that's just come out that says that people lie. And it's a good thing that people lie because then people learn to detect lying. And actually, our brain has gotten better and better over the thousands and millions of years, uh, hundreds of thousands of years at detecting lies. And that's why we're as intelligent as we are, because we've had to distinguish between the truth and, and a lie. So maybe... You know, telling a lie isn't necessarily a bad thing. Well, and I think there's, I mean, there's also research, right, that shows the reason we lie is for social or intelligent purposes to get our ways, right? And so it's not necessarily always this pernicious evil that sometimes we paint it out to be. But but I think even more to the point, you, you know, anyone looking at the internet over the last decade and engaging in social media and the like should know they don't but they should know that a lot of the stuff that they read is made up or it's been targeted at them with a particular point of view to persuade in in the words that you used earlier 
There's images that have been doctored and manipulated. And in many ways, I think AI, what it might do is make all of that manipulation and quote unquote lying uh, more obvious to us. And so that we as in public individuals will hopefully become much more discerning than I think we have been over the last decade about the things we ingest and read uh, on a regular basis. And, and maybe that'll be actually be a really good thing for society because right now we're all going down these, you know, micro tunnels, if you will, of of echo chambers that that speak to us. And and maybe this helps us break out of that a little bit, at least from an education perspective of informing us that you, you know, not only can you not trust everything you read, you you shouldn't, and you should be doing more digging. Well, that is uh, actually a really good point. Anything that can make us more discerning is 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 to be welcomed. But now, some school systems are banning chats. Now, New York City, Los Angeles, other big city schools. You mentioned a number in your in your article. Uh, is this the right decision? I think it's ludicrous because the students. You may ban, you know, Chat GPT on your campus or with your technology. But to think that students aren't accessing this or know how to access this outside of the school premises and, you know, through their compu parents' computers or whatever else is crazy. And what you're really doing in my mind is saying those kids who have access to the internet and internet connected devices, you can use AI. And those kids who don't have access to these devices, which are, you know, uh, there's an equity argument here, ironically, uh, you, you don't get access. And so... I think we're sort of fooling ourselves that these bans are doing anything productive and we ought to be leaning in more on, okay, the tool is here, just like the calculator is here. What do we do with it now? And and what becomes, what, what is still important for individuals to learn and master? And where do we get to harness these technologies to do something even greater? I mean, you, you made this book, this point in your book, Saving Schools, Paul, that some of the biggest shifts, right, in 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 how we do things in the world is where we shift labor from sort of the 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 centralized offering, if you will, from the department store, you know, uh, uh, people that help you pick out goods to the consumer themselves. And, and I think that's how you can see a lot of these tools that are coming out is that it empowers students to do so much more. So now we get to educate you how to use that, I think should be the, the the shift that we start to make. Well, what should teachers do in the classroom? They know the students have this access to this uh, capability. How do you how do you actually make use of it? If you're not going to ban it, uh, if, you, if you're going to ban it, then you got to enforce the ban, right? Yeah. And if you're Good not going to ban it, then how are you going to use it? So I think either way, let's let's talk about banning it and enforcing the ban. Can you can you ban it? Is there any way you could enforce banning it? Yeah. So let's start there. I'm skeptical. I, one, there are a number of plagiarism detection softwares that have been out there, you know, for many years now as digital learning has grown. Uh, and they use it to basically recognize other works that have been out there that have been used to represent essays. And now uh, these companies are scrambling to put out models that will detect the AI writing. This seems to me a cat and mouse game that good, good luck catching the AI in the long run, uh, because it's going to continue to make leaps and bounds forward and you know become better and better, number one. But number two, 
I, I've seen some stories about how some of these softwares thought that the Constitution was written by AI. So I'm not sure how effective they are. And and number three, um, I, the students, I think, very quickly are going to use this not to write the entire essay, but to basically coach them along as they write the essay, right? They're going to say, give me a paragraph on this, and then it'll spit back a paragraph. They'll edit it they'll spit back a question, hey, I don't like how this sentence reads, could you tweak it this way? And so realistically, the experiment we're do we did, which, which I think helpful to understand the capabilities of these tools, realistically, the use case is gonna evolve, I think, pretty significantly, such that you can be writing way more intelligent, if you will, <laughs> essays uh, with iteration with these tools that that I think is going to be awfully hard to detect with this software. So th it, that strikes me as you could try this. I'm just not sure how you're going to be able to do that for much longer. Well, the other thing you could do is just say, okay, all essays are going to be written in class and, um, and, and nobody's going to have access to a computer while they're writing, handwriting this essay. Is, is that what teachers uh is that what they're going to be doing number one and is that what they should be doing well i think that i think this is where it should go right which is not an outright ban on anything but instead to say look more work is going to be done in the classroom itself we're gonna you know be doing more oral presentations where you know in, in like a dissertation defense right but for the appropriate grade level we're going to be doing more in-class writing where I can give you feedback and look at what you're actually producing to get a sense for, you know, your process of writing over time and so forth. Um, I, I think those are good active learning pedagogical techniques anyway, that we ought to be doing more of. I know in your classroom, you've already flipped the classroom, right? A long time ago. This to me is a deepening uh, of that so that we're really using the class time for the actual work and engagement uh, itself. And so th this is actually one of my core pieces of advice. And by the way, teachers then can use the uh, AI as a as an assistant for them. So they can use it to generate more essay writing prompts. They can use it to generate feedback on the thing that you just hand wrote or you just wrote on the computer to get very quick feedback to you, you Paul, as you're writing your essay so that we can shorten the times between feedback and, and make for a more responsive learning environment. And we know, you know, Active learning is really important to good learning, but feedback <laughs> that you can actually use and improve performance is really important to good learning. So uh, these are the sorts of things that I think teachers can actually start using these chat uh, tools, these artificial intelligence tools to enhance their own craft. And I'll give you one more. They can also use it to come up with exemplar essays, and then the class can critique and attack, right? What the uh, what the AI just produced. W one of the big challenges teachers often have is to say, you know, I want an essay that's super strong in this regard and an essay that's weak in that regard and strong in this other one, so that we can start to understand the mechanics and devices that people use when they write and what makes a, for a more or less effective argument along different uh, heuristics. Well, uh, you mentioned my class. So one of the things we do in my class is, I, I, this is my introduction to American government class. And next fall, I will, I'm planning, I don't know if I'm gonna do this or not, but I'm planning uh, to ask students to uh, pretend they're a campaign advisor for a Senator who's running for reelection or somebody running against 
the senator in a competitive race. And uh, so they can choose whatever person they want. Uh, and then they have to come up with a strategy. What are the issues that need to be addressed? Uh, where do you get the uh, uh, money to run your campaign? Uh, where's your support base going to come from? What do you have to worry about from, you know, what are your weaknesses? All that kind of stuff. Uh, so, but I'm worried that they're just going to hit a button and Chad's going to write this for them. Yeah, I mean, it's possible, right? But I think part of this is you can also use the tool to proof your assignments, right? By asking what what would it produce and see what it produces. And maybe you have to tweak the questions a little bit, or frankly, you know, as other people have pointed out, these models are really good at understanding ideas that are already out in the world. They're not good at creating new ideas because they're based on inputs that are, you know, exist. And so I, I think in, in your case, you're asking for a hypothetical election that has not in fact occurred, right? In a scenario that is not real, students are going to be generating ideas that chat GPT isn't going to know about because it hasn't happened. Now, could they get clever enough, I suppose, to look at a scenario and ask it to distill, you know, a similar election that has occurred? Sure. But you know, they're almost at some point cheating themselves at that point as well. And so, I, I, you know, I, that was also always true. They could have always, you know, consulted their parents who worked on a political campaign and done something like this. It lowers the barriers, but I guess I'm not super worried. And the other piece of this is, and then what if you had them come in and you, they had to defend their ideas for five minutes with you verbally? I bet you would know within two minutes whether they had a real understanding of what they had written or not. Well, that's actually one strategy that I thought about, which is really following your advice. And, and that is to have every student make a presentation on their paper uh, before the end of the term so that uh, they can get feedback from the class and we can find out whether or not they actually know what they're talking about. Yeah, I mean, quest questions are the coin of the realm there, right? You, you ask three questions that if they can't go deep, you're going to know something is up. And I I think, you know, that's what good teachers do often, right? Like when you see plagiarism or things that are not authentic examples of work, teachers often are saying like, hey, I know, Michael, what kind of student you are. Something's not matching here. So uh, the other thought is that uh, chats cannot uh, document uh, material. I mean, uh, at, at least so far, I haven't seen citations. And one of the things uh, uh, we always ask our students to do is to uh, cite where they got the evidence uh, that they're using for their paper and so that various statements are, are, uh, are documented. So, uh, but then I worry, that that's coming soon. What do you think about that? Yeah, I mean, I will tell you, I've used ChatGPT myself. I, I wrote an essay recently on uh, getting back from Liberia and uh, Sierra Leone and some of the education work that I was doing over there. And uh, I wanted to figure out what Sierra Leone spent on education per student. And I was looking through all the World Bank, you know, things and this and that. Finally, I just asked ChatGPT, what's the answer? And so they gave me an answer very confidently of $96 or something per student. And then I, I wrote, and I said, where's your source for this? And it spit back a source for me. And so I went into the site and I couldn't find it. And so I sent, I sent them back. I, I said specifically where, you know, and so that sort of actually gave me the roadmap and then get this, Paul, 
I found the figure on which they were building and I did the currency conversion and I came up with $69 per student, not 96. So then I interrogated the thing to say, you know, why did you give me this? Cause I'm coming up with a different result and we sort of went through it. And then it ultimately said, you're right. I apologize was the language it used. <laughs> so, uh, but, but, you know, I, so to your point, I haven't seen it give you that sort of term paper format, but it actually was quite helpful for me in helping me locate something that I would have used Google right before, but this was actually more, it, it was better able to understand my question that I was trying to figure out. So what I hear you saying is don't ban it, have, have students use it, have students also show they understand the material by doing work in class without uh, access to this uh, technological device and, um, and have them talk about what they're doing. Yeah, that's exactly right. And in some ways, that's actually not all that different from what I would have told you before. You know, if you're a K through 12 teacher that's worried that maybe mom or dad is doing the homework, this probably isn't a bad idea for that either. Well, how did Socrates teach? <laughs> not with one of these, right? I mean, he asked questions. And that's, uh, I think, I, again, I think this is the core of the realm is we want students to be active thinkers, one of the ways you develop and flesh out your thinking is through the act of writing, right? You know, Clay Christensen always said, uh, I never knew how hard, a, how complicated a problem was until I tried to write my way through it. And I think that's right. Like writing is a really good way of wrestling with ideas and figuring out where your holes in logic. And, and frankly, I'll make another statement. If someone else observed that PowerPoint has become the way people communicate in so many parts of our society, you know, through bullet points. And you just think about how much PowerPoint allows you to escape the messy contradictions of your thinking below the PowerPoint. And that writing prose, I, I think, makes it much harder to, to sort of have those leaps of logic that don't flow. So to me, the writing becomes more and more of an important tool in developing your thinking as a student and then I get to have that conversation with you where I ask you questions to see like, you know, I'll know pretty, pretty quickly. Did you really develop your thinking or not? Yes. Well, I've become concerned that PowerPoint has crept into writing. I see students I actually uh, in an exam, they'll just list, uh, you know, uh, of various items as, as if that was answering the question. Uh, so my students, my students asked me the same thing this uh, term at, at the ed school at Harvard uh, in the fall. They said, can I do a PowerPoint presentation instead of a written essay for the final? I said, no, you can't, uh, because I think you're going to miss all of this. And I think it's one of the reasons, I don't know if they still do this, but when Jeff Bezos was running Amazon and someone pitched a new idea, he forbid PowerPoint. He said, you have to write a six-page memo telling me why this is a good idea and what it will what what will it look like when it's mature not because he believed that that would you know tell him what it actually looked like but because you would actually wrestle right with the logic and i just think that's such a superior form of communication to cause you to think which is what we really want students to do so uh uh, Michael, I know you're the, a distinguished fellow at the Clayton Christensen Institute for Disruptive Innovation, and I know you're the co-founder of the Clayton Christensen Institute uh, for Disruptive Innovation. And this certainly is a disruptive innovation. 
but how disruptive is it? Do you think this is really, in what ways are we gonna change the way in which schools are organized, the way they do things? Is this, you talked a lot about digital learning and disrupting education in your early work. Is this a bigger disruption than digital learning or where do you fit it into the big story? Yeah, it's a great question, Paul. And I'm still candidly trying to get all my head and ideas around it all. Um, because I'll, I'll confess until, you know, October of last year before this came out, I, I was super pessimistic on artificial intelligence and education relative to other people, because my read is like, you know, AI or machine learning was super useful where the average produced an answer that was marginally helpful relative to the base case. So when Amazon, right, uses artificial intelligence to say, I bet Paul Peterson wants, you know, uh, 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 an album of, of, of box, you know, uh, partitas, right, or, or whatever it might be. Even if you'd already bought the album a few months ago, like it, it, it didn't harm you and it might have been marginally helpful, right? But in education, this notion of like, we're going to produce the right next content or whatever, for for a given individual, it requires understanding the science of learning, have a real pedagogical model in mind, understanding the learner and what their background knowledge is, and uh, and so forth. And and that just an on average statement, not only could it be incorrect, it could be harmful because it might, you know, insult Paul Peterson's intelligence of what he already learned and and turn him off toward the subject or or whatever else, right? Um, but I, I think this is showing me that I, I I probably was wrong and that it's going to be much more significant than I had expected. And and it and I think the big overriding statement will be what I said earlier, which is that I think it's going to put more and more power and autonomy in the hands of learners themselves to be able to develop ideas, to be able to learn things, to be able to find useful resources. I mean, you you you're going to be able to go to Khan Academy soon where you could already learn almost anything. And you're going to have an artificial intelligence powered tutor, you know, powered by chat GPT four just next to you on the window. That's going to be sitting there prompting you and saying, you didn't get that quite right. Have you checked this? Or maybe you don't understand this concept from an earlier foundation. Let's revisit that. Right. That's going to be pretty powerful. And all of a sudden I think it, it really changes your relationship with your teacher in schools. And so, you know, schools could continue to ignore it, I suppose, but couple that with how many parents are moving to education savings accounts and micro schools and, and, and so forth right now, you know, moving away from public school or the traditional district schools, I think the confluence is going to be quite, uh, quite disruptive and powerful um, over the next generation in terms of what education has to evolve to to meet the moment. Well, that's uh, that's amazing thing. The one thing about chats that I've noticed is is how nice these people are. Uh, I asked them uh, to compare Paul Peterson to some other well known figure, not Michael Horn. I didn't dare do that, but some other well known uh, figure in in the field I work in, and and I said, well, who's better? You know, who's had the biggest impact? And you know, chats said, well, you know, on the one hand, they're both really important. You know, it, it just refused to uh, to to take the bait. Uh, so um, maybe if I 
pushed a little bit further. I could have gotten somewhere, but no, I think chance has learned to be very nice. Yeah, and I think it points to something else, which is you know the other thing this technology is going to do. It's it, it's already made it far easier to code through no code, right, and create applications, uh, digital applications, and so it's going to bring a whole new group of producers or creators, I think, into the world that can use the technology uh, far more robustly. Which I think you know, for the last uh, generation, we've seen a flight from the humanities to STEM uh, fields. And it's been apparent to me, at least for the last several years, that I think we've over-indexed on that as a country, that we've sort of moved away from teaching history and, and things of that nature at our and civics at our peril. And I think these questions of ethics and philosophy and history and so forth, how we treat each other, it becomes more important as we develop these models, frankly, um, and because it sort of commoditizes some of that STEM expertise, if you will, uh, in favor of the how do we use this and how do we want it to interact with us? And, and people are behind that. You know, people do matter in these models. Yeah, I noticed that Chas wasn't very good with uh, Shakespeare's Midsummer's Night's Dream. Uh, no, we, 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 no, we, all, we, all, we all would do as well to learn. <laughs> well, uh, thank you very much, uh, Michael, for joining me on the Education Exchange. Thank you, Paul. I've been speaking with Michael Horn, Distinguished Fellow at the Clayton Christian Institute for Disruptive Innovation. He and Daniel Curtis are authors of a new paper released on the Education Next website that explores the impact of chat GPT on teaching and learning. I am Paul Peterson. This is the Education Exchange. Please join me every Monday at noon when our weekly podcast is released on the Education Next website.